Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This podcast contains explicit language. good because because we didn't even see Ibrahim conducting us just there but we all we all cut off when he did the thing when he did that little thing with your hand that musical directors do you know so that happened this week Iranian leaders got a letter authored by Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton and signed by 46 other Republican senators in which a clear message was sent. And that message, no one should ever take the United States of America at their word. Why did this have to happen? We're joined by HuffPost national security reporter Jessica Scholberg to figure that out. Meanwhile, letters of an unseen electronic variety are also in the news this week as presumptive Democratic presidential contender Hillary Clinton spoke publicly for the first time about the email flap that's embroiled her nascent campaign. It's one big weird own goal, and unfortunately, the soccer metaphors do not end there. Finally, someone at the Federal Reserve spilled a secret to wealthy investors. Someone else at the Federal Reserve tried to find out who that was. Then everyone found out that the Federal Reserve was trying to find this out. And Congress would like to know why they've not been apprised about any of this. Will this bolster those who say the Fed deserves greater scrutiny? Spoiler alert, yes. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Jessica Schulberg. And here's what happened first. Hey, everybody. It's So That Happened, the world-famous podcast about things that have occurred. I'm Jason Lincolns. Sorry, I'm back. Um, I was out sick last week. I'd like to thank Arthur Delaney, sitting to my left, for filling in so ably while I was having my misadventures, Arthur. You're welcome, and welcome back. Yeah, it's good to be back. And also joining us is... Zach Carter. I missed last week, too, uh, because I was having fun in the Grand Canyon, Instead of having fun here, uh, although I did get caught in a flash flood and then a blizzard, although it's it's over over dramatizing it a little bit, I admit. <laughs> glad you're okay. We're glad you're both okay. Yeah, yeah, we're was, both. I was not in any danger at any time. Please don't Bill O'Reilly me for this. Did has everybody been having a, a great great week? This was a wonderful wonderful week. What was wonderful about it? Besides the fact that there's finally spring is here. In the, Washington. The weather, is, once again... Our five days of spring. For the second week in a row, the weather was interesting and enjoyable. <laughs> uh, also, for the second week in a row, Hillary Clinton. Fabulous. Great week. Um, but we'll get to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Zach, how have you been? I've been good. I've been really looking forward to the end of the week. Um, I think the ACC tournament this year in college basketball is going to be better than the NCAA tournament. So the next few days, or the previous few days, depending on how time works, uh, have or will be great. Dear dear listener, yeah, I sit, I sit between these guys and man, do they talk college ball? We man, do. Do, man, do they talk hoop? 
Yeah, and we're we're kind of in the tank for for uh, UVA, obviously. Team uh, of the team of righteousness. The so, team of righteousness. So dreadful. Yeah. yeah, the the one the one group that can stand against ISIS. Yeah, it's the UVA pack line defense. Oh my we God. really got to get Justin Anderson healthy, or we're never going to defeat ISIS. Oh, this is yes. the kind of crap. Yep. Yeah, I know. Can I? <laughs> so and so's thumb is hurt. Can I just say, like, while I, while I was sick, came the news that Justin Anderson had had an appendectomy, and immediately they were like, "Oh, he may be out like a week," and I was like, "What?" Because my father had an appendectomy when I was a kid, and man, he was not like out for a week. He was out for like forever. In fact, he tried to play racquetball. My dad is not typically an idiot, but this was an idiot move. <laughs> his doctor said, "His doctor said, if you fuck around, you will open your incision. So don't fuck around for like a long time." And my dad just got stir crazy. Went out. I think he tried to play racquetball or something. He physically exerted himself and reopened his incision. And we were just like. Damn man, that was dumb. But I guess, <laughs> but I guess, thirty years later, you can do this. You can just also, like, maybe, go in, may, kill that appendix. Maybe your dad's, uh, maybe your dad's doctor just sucked too. And it's true. Just, you know, did like a weird zigzag on the incision for no reason. You know, it's true. Did he have a zigzag incision? He did have. Well, I don't know. I don't remember if it's a zigzag, <laughs> but it was an incision. If it's a zigzag, it's usually a sign of a bad, bad doctor. I think maybe he what, did. what are you uh, uh, an MD over here, Zach? <laughs> no, what is this? I stick actually, with college ball and the Fed. To be honest with you, I think he was a bad doctor because, if I recall correctly, and here I am probably violating HIPAA violations. He, uh, my father had a surgery later, and it was, uh, and there were complications owing to the fact that he had this appendectomy years before. The whole thing was a mess. He played I, racquetball with uh <laughs> with like a fresh appendectomy scar. Yeah, yeah. And we're gonna be we're gonna crap on the doctor. <laughs> we're totally yes. gonna crap on the doctor. Racquetball like the most vigorous thing I could even imagine right. for your oh. scar on your belly. Arthur, I'll bet you vaccinate <laughs> your children, don't you? <laughs> I don't. I don't. <laughs> no. Not old enough. Va- <laughs> when he's old enough, please vaccinate the child. That's a good reason to not vaccinate your kid. I yeah. don't vaccinate my kids either because they don't exist. Yeah. I vaccinate my dog. Um, yeah, vaccinate my cat. Yeah, it's, yeah. Vaccines are good for mammals. All right. So before we go off the rails completely, uh, Zach, you have huge feelings about a story that broke this week. Big, big feelings. Oh, yeah. Like really, really, uh, really strong feelings. They are they are multicolored and psychedelic. Uh, and it's about the ruling that was just handed down in this weird, weird case over Robin Thicke song Blurred Lines. Yeah, Robin Thicke and, and Farrell Williams, uh, producer, uh, you know, one half of, once known as one half of the Neptunes. They did the song Blurred Lines, and my feelings on this are so complicated and intense because I hate this song. I hate the lyrics to this song. I hate the cultural presence of this song. I loathe the video. I think it's sexist. I think it's kind of rapey. Um, but the copyright infringement case that Farrell and um, Robin Thicke just lost in which uh, Marvin Gaye's estate, not Marvin Gaye himself because Marvin D- Gaye is dead, uh, Marvin Gaye's estate Rest was awarded, in peace. Yes, one of the great artists of the 20th century, uh, was awarded $7.4 million is uh, it is a calamity. It is outrageous. It sets a terrible, terrible legal pre- precedent if it is upheld. So just to back up here, the, the whole idea here is that Blurred Lines, this is probably not something that a lot of people understood when the song came out, but Blurred Lines was in some, some large way inspired by Marvin Gaye's Got to Give It Up. 
Deeply culturally indebted. Yes, deeply culturally indebted. In fact, it was it was discussed. Pharrell and Robin Thicke discussed actually kind of like recreating the vibe from that song on this particular track. And apparently they hit it maybe a little too close to comfort for some because there was enormous discussion in the intervening period of time when the song came out about how much it was indebted to Marvin Gaye's song. And then puzzlingly, and so there, there's kind of this conflict was set up, and then puzzlingly, Thick and Williams opted to sort of preemptively sue the gay estate. I don't know why. I, I mean, I, I can't speak to their legal strategy. I can only speak to the... the as far as legal this. strategies go, they're good musicians. Uh, right. <laughs> but one problem with musicians is, I, I mean, I've been a musician for years, and the, the musician community is full of total idiots. I don't think uh, Robin Thicke and Farrell Williams are total idiots. Um, I, I think they, they have... This legal strategy may not have been great, but it really made no sense for this ruling to go down um, the, the way it did. There are there are clear precedents for in copyright law for what what counts copying somebody's you know sound. You cannot copy someone's sound. In fact, and be sued for it. You can only copy their song. The exact melody has got to be there. The chord progression. Typically, we're only even talking about the vocal melody in in the main hook of the song right. as something that is is you know a law suitable. And this offense. was just like a, the vibe basically at the beginning. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I mean, go, hey, hey. And you and you can hear. I mean, look, you can hear percussion. It's the percussion like ideas are similar, but the actual beats are different. The actual instruments used are different because they're using electronic instruments. In the in the, I mean, Farrell was using those as a producer this time around. Marvin Gaye didn't have those options in 1975 yeah. because the the technology did not exist. Um, the bass lines are different. Um, the only melodic similarities they could find were two note similarities. Um, you know, if if that's going to be the basis for uh, for, for copyright lawsuits, then, you know, there is a guy who started singing in Africa like 100,000 years ago, and every time we sing a song, we've got to start paying off, you know, three-fourths of the world's population. Right. I mean, just about every punk every punk song, like, has sort of a cultural touchstone and, like, some some old band's three-chord progression. You know, the, the, uh, the new Kelly Clarkson single, Heartbeat Song, sounds... In large part, almost exactly like the old Jimmy Eat World single, The Middle. I was just listening to Prince's new record last night, and there's a song on that record that owes a pretty heavy debt to Led Zeppelin. Uh, and, and so it's 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 weird. Have we opened the door to more lawsuits where people are just like, or do you think that people will just simply show restraint? Could Nirvana sue Bush now? That would be awesome. <laughs> I mean, that's the that's the thing. Like, like you can't you can't copyright the idea of like reggae music or the idea of punk rock. You can't do that. You can copyright the exact song that you wrote. And if somebody you know, if somebody steals your vocal melody or your lyrics, you know, then you then you've got a, a legitimate case to bring against somebody. That's not what happened here. These people were influenced by an artist from thirty years ago, forty years ago, who is dead, and his estate, these people who did not make the music. Are, are being awarded money because they made a song that sounded kind of similar and had a similar vibe. You're allowed to influence people, and you are allowed to be influenced as musicians. And I think Chris Richards for the for the Washington Post really summed up the consequences uh, for this type of ruling if it stands. Robin Thicke and Farrell Williams are appealing this, so I I don't think it will stand ultimately because it's it's a catastrophically bad decision um, for for all all creative people, whether they're musicians or not. Um, but you know there was a there was a decision in 1991. Um, in in a copyright case where Bismarcky was sued for uh, for sampling another song, and he lost the case, uh, and as a result, the state of sampling in in music in the music business changed radically. Um, 
Paul, albums like Paul's Boutique by the Beastie Boys, where they, people created these these elaborate sound collages. I mean, Public Enemy was doing this too, um, with using you know a little piece of a song here, a little piece of a song here, dozens of samples in a song. Uh, sometimes hundreds of samples in a song to create something new, that technique just stopped. It completely stopped happening. Um, and so we, that that type of music, that type of expression ended, really, because of that, that court decision. This has even further, I, I think, reaching potential consequences. Every time you create a song, you would have to be proving that you are not like anybody else who had ever made music before. And that is just not possible. Well, You're just opening the doors to endless litigation. Hopefully they will undo it, but Robin Thicke will get his comeuppance somehow. Some other way. Yeah. Some other way. He deserves that, certainly. <laughs> the world does not deserve this decision. <laughs> okay, moving on back into the world of politics. Uh, I mean, the inescapable story this week, uh, it's simultaneously a, 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 a stupid story. <laughs> Why is the world so full of stupid it's, things? It's a, politi- it it's a politics story. For a um, good week, I thought, I thought it was an all right story, but something, ab- something about it did get outlandish. Something about the proportion of it was strange. All right, so let's stop dancing around. What we're story? About... <laughs> what story are we talking about? The Loch Ness Monster. We're talking no. about. We're talking about. No, we're not. Not this week. I'm, but I'm hot on the trail. I think by the end of April, we'll... the truth is out there. Nancy. So that happened is going to like nail down the Loch Ness Monster. But a lot of people don't know this. But like, so that happened is actually a uh, cryptozoology podcast masquerading as a politics podcast. Yeah, play it backwards. You'll hear it. You'll hear it. We talk about the Jersey Devil. We talk about Loch Ness Monster. You know, that's what we're all about. So play it backwards. Um, also, there's a lot of satanic messages. Eh, you know. Huffington Post. Hail. <laughs> Hail. Um, but no, we're talking about, God, what a wind-up. We're talking about uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, email. Hillary Clinton's email. Hillary Clinton's email. Hillary Clinton's email. Oh, God. I heard about this when I was at, getting out of the Grand Canyon. And Were you under a rock? <laughs> yeah. Did you immediately want to go back into the Grand Canyon and stay there? I, because there's a year and a half of this shit we still have to go through. Yeah, I drove back to Phoenix and people were talking about emails, making email jokes. I was like, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, oh, you've been in the Grand Canyon for a week. And I was like, that was awesome. What's the email thing? And then I just want, I was like, I cannot believe the Hillary Clinton campaign is this stupid before they even exist. Well, listen, Jason, I like the Hillary Clinton email. So what do you mean you like them? I, I think it's a good story. Oh, you, you like the story. You don't actually like the email. You don't have access to the email. Like, Nobody wow. has the email except for Because I was going to be surprised. The Benghazi Select Committee has like 900 of them right now. Sure, like they a want, bunch. They, they are claiming that they do not have an email from the day that the iconic texts from Hillary photo was taken. <laughs> and they, they decided to start complaining about that when it was revealed that she used a personal email right. Secretary of State. So some backstory on this. Uh, I, I think it was, um, I can't remember when, a couple years ago, a Romanian hacker named Guccifer. Mm-hmm. Well, this was hacked, uh, two, 2013. Okay, so it was two years ago. Yeah. Okay, so he hacked into uh, the email account, uh, the AOL account, Sadly, of Sydney, uh, yeah, Sydney Blumenthal, long by time, AOL stock, long time, long time Hillary Clinton advisor, and uh, and and not liked by the Obama administration. In fact, his uh, his proposed role at state was nixed by the Obama administration because Sydney was behind a lot of smears of the Obama campaign. So they were like, "Nah, we're not going to work with him." So but Guccifer hacked into this Sydney e- 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 Blumenthal's email, and it revealed that there was an email account, H- H- 
HDR22 at uh, ClintonEmail.com. Uh, and and so that was how we the world came to know that Hillary Clinton had been using a, a private email account. What we've since learned is that not only has Hillary Clinton been using this private email account, but she's not been using an email account on the state.gov domain. In fact, opted out, she says, out of a matter of convenience. Um, and, and That's what she said this week after the scandal yes. brewed. Yeah, you know that was her big response. It was convenient not to have two emails. On top of all that, she has a private server in Chappaqua. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that word. Sounded right. right. Chappaqua. I, I like to pronounce it. With, you know the original inflection. Chappaqua. I have York. like four emails, and I am nowhere near as connected and complicated as yeah. Hillary Clinton. I do not understand that defense at all. I think that is completely stupid. Right. And and, uh, and she said it wasn't against the rules, but if you read the rules, they say. Use a government email. So it was a very strange and just brazen, brazenly uh, insufficient explanation she came out with. Yeah. You know, what's funny is I'm not sure I'd call this so much brazen as I would just call dumbass. Yes. I, I originally dumbass, and I think the, uh, the, the brazen is, is only... Is in the explaining part. Yes. But it, not... it, gets, it got worse. It's like watching... I'm stealing this from my friends in Phoenix who, who came up with this metaphor, but it is like watching an eight-year-old play chess because, oh, look, I put you in check. <laughs> Not thinking ahead any moves. Boom, queen's captured, checkmate, you lose. Uh, it's like, oh, you know what? We'll avoid all of this you know, invasion of privacy crap that we'll have with all these people monitoring our emails. No conception that something is going to happen eventually and that they're going to have to deal with Where this were Hillary's pawns? <laughs> she got rooked. This is it's just it's like watching an 8-year-old play chess and and there is just aside from the fact that I think I think it's clearly it's most people I think agree that this is designed to avoid scrutiny of the email, right? I mean this is this is a way to keep the thing to prevent of it yourself is, from the thing from of it is, is of oversight. course it, it 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 obviously has the appearance of that. We don't know if the original intention was that. I mean, she could be completely on the level when she says, "Oh, you know, I want to just have one email account." Um, but I don't think, but I don't think you can avoid any other interpretation than she wanted to avoid some degree of scrutiny. It plays back into this whole overarching need among the Clintons to be sort of secretive. And what's crazy to me about this, what's crazy to me is that had she just set up a state.gov email account and done sufficient amount of business on that account, then this would not be a story. It would not be a story. Uh, the be the like, best case the scenario is she's just really dumb. The disclosure that she had some private account on the side wouldn't be even a story. You could try to make it a story, but most Americans know that it's possible to have two email accounts. And like a lot of people walk around in their daily lives with work email and personal email. I do. I'm sure you guys maybe do too. Yes. Yes. Band okay, email, so, work email, different things. It's not hard. So that's that's something that human beings do. Okay. It's pretty it's inexplicable to me that she didn't just set up the state.gov account and use it. This is just a it's a total own goal and there's no yeah, there's, there's no no, no need it. for this. And yeah. it at the best case scenario is that is that she has made all of her democratic uh, supporters start sweating bullets about the 2008 campaign all over again, looking at 
crass mismanagement and wondering what other things are out there in in her tenure as Secretary of State yep. that that have been that have been handled poorly that that will be fodder for for campaign I like it, rightly it, or wrongly by by Republicans. It became a meta story in which all of the Clintons' grievances against the press have come back as part of the explanation for why they handle it so badly. Yeah. Which I, I just enjoy reading that, that they really hate reporters. You know, it's really funny, and I, and I hate to make I hate to make a comparison that's going to lose, like, I guess, probably 75% of our audience. Uh-oh. But, but it reminds me a lot of, of Liverpool striker Mario Balotelli. Oh, what the hell are okay, you talking about? I'll tell you, I'm, I'm tell you why, because the thing that... Because the, the expression, no more UVA stuff, The expression right? that's used... I'm going to explain it. No more it. college hoop. I'm going to explain it. The the expression this that she This is a used, cricket reference, okay? The expression the cricket that World Series. The expression, oh God! Time the expression that people say about Balotelli, the cliche is "Why always him?" And it's always because Balotelli is this guy who's tremendously talented, great chef, generally a nice guy, but he does these crazy, super weird, antisocial things. And people are like, why does he behave this way? Why why always him? It was the and appendectomy. Why always Hillary? Hillary's a talented person, probably a decent person. Obviously, uh, obviously good in the in the sphere in which she runs, but she does these dumb things. I, th- I would also say that this is the result of her decision to conduct a slow motion shadow campaign that has not begun, does not exist, uh, will never end, and never started. Yeah, it just just to to float on a cloud of presumptiveness, and that's why it's probably now going to start in April. It'll have to it, well. That starting date had been uh, floated to the press a few months ago, really. But anyway, well, I, I two think... starting dates. There was the idea that she might start in July. Their camp was divided about when uh, to even start being a camp. I think Arthur has a good point here, though. <laughs> I, this is a consequence of. I mean, if if you don't have a real campaign with real things to report on, people are going to find other things to report on. Yes, right. uh, and and the uh, the denials that a campaign exists create this weird void. Where stuff like this, yeah, festers. she she is getting to a point where she's defending her positions in the press. As hard as that is, right? This as hard is all we, is, this is that's what we still got. the task. Yeah, that's still the task. So start start your campaign, start defending positions. The trouble is, of course, is that for from the Democratic perspective, is that like all the eggs are in Hillary Clinton's basket. There's no other candidate in the offing that appears even remotely capable of ginning up the kind of campaign. To take on who the Republicans have on their side. Uh, just wait till Michelle Obama gets in there. It's not never, ever, ever going to happen. That would be so awesome. Michelle Obama has, I promise you, a hard date on that calendar set where she kicks the dust off this town and never the fuck comes back. No, no she's going to make everyone, she's going to campaign on a kale platform. Uh, no. <laughs> she's going to kick everyone's butt. She's going to kale, be... kale, 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 kale the poor. No, she'll... seriously, there is nobody. <laughs> she'll be glad. Kale the rich. <laughs> she'll be glad to get out of here. Uh, yeah, um, I, at the same time, it is kind of, it is kind of like, it puts, I think, the press in a weird position, uh, because, uh, how long do you cover this story? How long do you, like, as soon as she starts her campaign and starts coming out with positions, do you start covering that? Yes. I mean, to what extent do you cover this email story? And what is, at what point the AP, for example, is suing to get access to more emails. Yeah. Everyone's trying to get access to more emails. My question is, 
at what what is the email that you get in your hand and read and be like, okay, since I have this in my hand, reading this, I know that she's been transparent. She's handed over the goods. You know, because if there's nothing scandalous in any cache of emails. Right, she's created a, a, a problem which she cannot disprove. Yeah, she can't solve this problem. Mm. This is something, this is. <laughs> it's, a, it's about the process of what she's done because all the other governors who are potential presidential contenders typically release emails from their tenure. Right. Cabinet officials' correspondence comes out. I don't know if, if it's typically this early, but why not? I think it's uh, I think it's a legitimate thing for people to ask for, and uh, the bungling of it is has created a story that would not otherwise. One thing I'll say is that is that you know Hillary Clinton in this field is not alone in having these kind of weird email situations. Scott Walker famously mm. has his own private uh, server, just like Hillary Clinton does, on which he blended the personal and political and yeah. state. Uh, I think that if we lived in sort of a sane substantive media environment, what we would do is we would actually bring these candidates to debates and and grill them on their opinions of what what the definition of open government means to them and uh, what the important the importance of public disclosure, what should the people know about the business you're conducting? How will you conduct yourself? But we won't be that sane. We will be looking for that gaff within gaff within gaff within gaff. Uh, hopefully, yeah, it's, there's it's, an I mean, email that says, LOL, Benghazi, oh, oh, or something it's, nonsense. It's, like it's hard to blame Hillary Clinton for hating the press and the political press. I mean, the Clintons did have a pretty rough ride of it during, I mean, they, they were crazy right-wing conspiracy theories that then made Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Their way into the mainstream press, I mean, the idea that like, you know, the Clintons had murdered Vince Foster. I mean, people did really crazy, nasty things to the Clintons during, during their tenure in office. Um, but at the same time, you're running for president. I mean, that's... You, you can't run without a press, and you you also can't govern without the press. Yeah, um, these oh. things are necessary parts of a, of a functioning democracy, and and the, the 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 sort of crouch and be hostile to the press, defensive crouch coupled with like vicious nastiness. I just don't think is a is a particularly promising strategy. The press also loathes itself. Hard mm-hmm. to blame anyone for loathing the press. Uh, I disagree with whataboutism as a defense, but I, I agree with you that there ought to be. Uh, a broader debate about open government. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm not trying to say both sides do it because, yeah. you know, what what happens is it's not that both sides do it. It's just that individuals do stupid shit, and you should be able to you should be able to pinpoint that person. And, well, and let's be, also be clear you, that 
let's also be clear. Scott, Scott Walker that. didn't also just. It's not just that he also had an, uh, an independent account, but like there have been serious, credible investigations suggesting that he he did wrong things with the comminglings of those accounts. Right. So so it's not just that the emails were separate, but that but that campaign vi- finance laws and and government, uh, you know, uh, what you're allowed to do as a governor and, and how you're allowed to raise money that those those rules were, were run afoul of. No one has accused Hillary Clinton of a second order, you know, actual doing something bad with the private email account. It's just the the lack of disclosure. That's uh, not entirely stage. true. The uh, I think the single most substantive thing to be concerned about in in the fact that Hillary Clinton commingled her personal business with her State Department mm. business just on her email domain is to is how much State Department business and Clinton Global Initiative business got commingled because oh, well, that, the, yes. because the Clinton Global Initiative it is a charity you know, but it's also, I think, a very powerful political tool, very powerful fundraising tool. Uh, the Clintons can use it to sort of, you know, uh, keep big, big corporate brands happy by by helping to boost their brands, make make them appear charitable. And then when it comes time to, uh, you know, who are they going to stand with? In right, the right. No, it, it creates a, at the very least very significant apparent conflict. And then this, yeah, and the specter of perhaps foreign foreign companies playing a foreign part. Governments of, and, very and problematic. Hillary Clinton trading on her Secretary of State position to synergize that. That's potentially serious. That's that's the same kind of thing that uh, uh, that former Governor Kitzhaber's uh, wife was got in trouble for in Oregon. Obviously, very small, but she was accused of trading on her position of first lady to feather her own nest. Well, fortunately, so Jeb kind of Bush thing. has never has never traded on his position <laughs> Bush, uh, yeah. to his own financial advantage. Yeah, to so. a certain extent, to a certain extent, this is a uh, this is all of a piece of the larger commingling of corporate money and power and politics that no one in the media really wants to have a serious critique about. Because it's the worst thing ever and nothing is going to happen about it. Yeah, basically. All right, well, there you go. (laughs) Hey there, listener of this podcast. I've got a quick little thing I'd love to chat with you about. Are you a regular So That Happened listener? Well, let us know. Send me an electronic communication with your electronic communicating devices at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Tell us what you think of the show, what we're messing up, and who you'd like to hear more from or more about. Okay, back to the program. So earlier this week, Zach Carter. Who? You know what? Did you see what Zach Carter did, Arthur? Was it a scoop? He got a big scoop. Or was it two scoops? <laughs> You got give us the raisin brand. All right, uh, tell us what you did. Chip, uh, tell us what you did, Zach. No, it's a, so so a serious uh, leak um, from 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 the Fed. Okay, yeah. so I th- we, I had sort of a second order scoop. I think the the um, the real scoops were um, the, the most significant scoops were in December from uh, ProPublica and, and Bloomberg, two very good reporters there, um, revealed that uh, in 2012, someone uh, from the Federal Reserve had leaked information about uh, its upcoming QE3 stimulus program. They're they're going to to buy a lot of bonds in order to keep interest rates low and boost the economy, get more money out into the economy for people to spend. Um, They leaked these details to a a Wall Street uh, political intelligence and investment advisory firm. 
um, which then distributed this out to its elite clients uh, before the Fed decision was actually announced. Such a no-no. That's very bad. I mean, it's it's a lot like insider trading. Um, you're, you're getting access to a very, very big, important decision before the markets can. You're able to trade on it before um, before the rest of the market can do so. And and you know, the Fed in in traditionally has taken these types of leaks pretty seriously. Uh, when there was one reported leak in the 1990s, Alan Greenspan actually called in the FBI to investigate. Um, this time around, uh, the Fed didn't even acknowledge that the breach had happened until ProPublica filed a FOIA against them, a Freedom of Information Act request. Um, and then it became clear that the Fed had conducted some sort of investor investigation on their own. That investigation appears to be to have been conducted by the Fed's top lawyer, uh, the general counsel, Scott Alvarez, where he basically sent a, a questionnaire around to the you know dozen or so people who it possibly could have been saying, did you do this? Do you like me? <laughs> yes or no? So there's you have literally, to check the box. Do you want to keep your job or do you want to get in trouble? Just just tell me which one. So there's literally only 12 people who could have leaked. It's a very, very small universe of people. The, the details that were leaked, it had to be somebody very, very high up, either a, a policymaker on the board itself, probably a staffer, a top staffer, someone in the Fed staff. Um, but it's a very, very small universe of people who possibly could have done this. And so after the Fed just says, well, here's a here's a questionnaire, you know, Alvarez goes, goes to... Uh, you know, the the we actually don't know what happened, but the the investigation results have never been have never been released. No one has ever been reprimanded. Right. Um, Just to be specific, the leak occurred on Bernanke's watch, yes. and the investigation has 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 been ongoing into Janet Yellen's turn. At least the first investigation, we we, all, we only really know that it started after that the Fed conducted their own investigation, and nobody's been reprimanded. The scoop that I had this week, which is a second order scoop. Um, it was was a scoop saying that actually the Fed's independent auditor, its its, it's inspector general, um, conducted their own investigation, a separate investigation from the and, one Scott Alvarez did. Right. So different, different. Instead of the Fed investigating itself, it was supposedly an independent group that was investigating it. Um, but an inspector's general, just in general, are serious watchdogs that every federal agency and the Federal Reserve they all have them. Yes. Congratulations on getting the correct plural of that. It's like attorneys well general. Done. Yeah, well done. I'm a, I'm a goddamn writer. <laughs> although, <laughs> although if you read Neil Borofsky's book Bailout, uh, you may come away with the different opinion on the effects, the effectiveness of inspectors. General. Well, and and you might you might when you think about this this particular investigation because we reported that it had taken place, which had not been reported before. That was the scoop, uh, and that it, it lasted at least a year. Um, it now looks like uh, as the story has progressed and we've reported further on it. Um, that uh, the investigation lasted well over a year, uh, was closed without without finding anybody guilty uh, or accountable, um, and and then was uh, reopened for some reason uh, very recently. Uh, they decided to announce that they had reopened the investigation the day after our story ran. Um, there's there are other reports suggesting that they'd made that decision earlier. Um, and I th- you know clearly somebody sources gave us this information, so so something has been in the works. But I I, I think. Um, I, I, I really think what's what's odd here is that you're dealing with a small number of potential culprits um, and an infraction, which if the Fed had just sort of fessed up to this really quickly, they probably could have just fired the guy and it wouldn't have been that big a deal or the woman, whoever it is, whoever it was. But he's their friend. But the Fed obviously didn't. I mean, and it, it, this this feeds it's sort of it's sort of like the Clinton email uh, scandal and that it feeds into all of the negative perceptions and skepticisms about the Fed that the public has, that it's too secretive, that it's not accountable, that it caters to wealthy elites instead of the general public, mm-hmm. because here you have a clear and a clear violation of protocol. It, it's, it's not in dispute that the, the violation of protocol happened. Right. The, the we know that the newsletter went out. We know the clients got the information ahead of the general public. Something bad did happen. It's just a question of determining who it was. Yeah. And if you go through 
you know, phone and email records, it should not be that difficult to determine you know, who, who the likely list of people who are responsible are. Here's my question. Sorry. Does Do inspectors general generally announce when they start or conclude an investigation? Like what if they – I mean say, say they start an investigation they don't get anything – they wouldn't come out and say, well, we, we, <laughs> we, get a, we boned it. Or, or would they? Or would they? Would they say the results of our investigation conclude that, you know, nothing, nothing bad happened? So they have no legal obligation to disclose these investigations to the public or to Congress. Um, but they often do. And I mean, that's customary to say, hey, we're looking into this. If it's serious, when, when the investigation is open, they, they often don't. But usually when it's been closed, they, they can say hey, they, they can tell people in Congress that this happened. Um, and I, I, I can tell you, I mean, there are uh, th- there is a lot of congressional attention to this right now. Uh, and, and people seem to be seem to be upset about the way both the Fed and the IG have, have handled this, which I think is why the IG went t- took the step of saying publicly that they reopened an investigation, which, you know, as we just discussed, they don't have to do. Uh, but you've seen Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, really grill Janet Yellen about the Scott Alvarez investigation before the Senate Banking Committee. Uh, and then uh, and then this, this past week, Senator Orrin Hatch, who's head of the Finance Committee, um, which doesn't have direct oversight over the Fed the way the Banking Committee does, but has a lot of oversight over you know the Treasury, other aspects of you know nominations that go there. So he, he is a powerful figure in, in sort of the, the, this circle. Uh, he sent letters to both Yellen and the AG that were very sharply worded, saying that the, the lack of uh, transparency and, and forthcomingness with, with his office had been unacceptable. Um, so you clearly have a bipartisan expression of, uh, of, of outrage, really, at, uh, at what's going on here. And none of that had to happen. You know, the Fed could have just held this person accountable. It would have been a bad, a bad press day for them, but then it would have been over. Now they have to deal with years of what looks like to a lot of people uh, an unaccountable institution covering up something that, uh, that an own that goal, one an last, appendectomy. One last question. <laughs> one last question. Who got rich off this? Wall Streeters, uh, you know, the, the the company Medley Global Advisors, that um, that was the political intelligence firm that. that Caters and this sort of stuff. You know, they're, they're not the only firm that that is engaged in this type of activity. Um, but their you know their clients are mostly hedge funds and and wealthy investors. So right. so there were hedge fund traders on Wall Street who got uh, who made a whole well, bunch of money. Uh, watch and... where Fed governors and their staff go after. <laughs> right, and we'll know who dropped. Well, the dime. you know, but that's odd though because a lot of the pe- most of the staff people at the Fed, the, the really high level staff people at the Fed, are often very de- dedicated public servants. I mean, it's even someone like like Scott Alvarez, who has come under fire from Elizabeth Warren, you know, he he hasn't sold out to some hedge fund or something. You know, he's stu- he stayed at the Fed for a very long time. They're very loyal to that institution. Um, so, uh, but but it still is an institution that sits at the nexus of this weird elite insider power, and in this type of leak, in this type of uh, botched investigation or multiple investigations, I, I don't think is something that builds confidence in in the institution's ability to function without oversight. Joining us now is Jessica Schulberg. Hi. Jessica is a national security reporter. She is just a, just recently joined us. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yep. Are we, do, everything okay so far? This is week four, so yeah, everything. That's great. great. That's great. You know, people just they don't send letters much anymore. You guys, it's really a dying, dying art. Do you remember how you know that? Remember that Arcade Fire song that was mm-hmm. just like, mm-hmm. yeah, we used to wait for letters, and it used to mean so much. I love it's it's a dying art form, but this week or not this week, but last week, uh, 
like I said, I was out all last week. So Wait. My, my sense of time and space. My letters to my ex-girlfriend surface in the press? <laughs> I meant to destroy those. <laughs> they did, but we won't be talking about those until another so that happened. When I get oh, her boy. full story. But, uh, but, uh, but lately, we've been, lately we've been dealing with um, missives of the written sort. Tom Cotton. This is true. And, uh, and well, Jessica, why don't you take us through the whole shebang here? So basically, Tom Cotton led this effort. He and 46 other Republican senators signed a letter to the leaders of Iran. So that was broadly meant to be the supreme leader, the president, and the foreign minister. And, you know, he said, look, I understand you guys are in Iran. You don't really understand how America works. So let me let me tell you how our Constitution works, how this Congress works. This uh, deal that you're negotiating with uh, the U.S. and five other members of the Security Council, plus one, um, it doesn't really mean anything. Anything that they agree upon to prevent us from bombing the shit out of you, really, we can just overturn it, and we probably will. Uh, So that didn't go so well with the Democrats, with Obama, with all the people that are working to secure negotiation, and they sort of saw it as this deliberate effort to undermine years and years of negotiations with the Iranians. No, wait a minute. Okay, so that <laughs> seems like that's clear that that is what it was doing. But uh, isn't it kind of weird? I mean, isn't it weird to say, hey, whatever agreements our government makes, we're not going to stand by them in the future? Isn't that like a pretty... I, I, has that happened before? Where someone in the United States government <laughs> says, so don't amazing. trust us? It's, it's being called unprecedented yeah. in some circles. Don't trust us. <laughs> don't don't take anything we That's say great. seriously. Yeah, you know that these 47 guys will probably, in a few months' time, come out and say... And it's uh, more than the 47 now. These guys that are running for president, they thought this would be a great thing to sign their name uh, to as well. Um, who, who among the 2016ers have... I think Jindal did. I could check. I don't uh, know. Well, if there's a... You know, if, if, someone, <laughs> if someone's crapped in a bag, Bobby <laughs> Jindal wants to crap in a bag, too. And he'll crap bigger <laughs> and stinkier. <laughs> the... Um, the the amazing thing is that is it's funny how you bring bring up the whole like trust part because like there'll probably be a direct line between the forty seven people who signed this letter and like the people who are just like let's not raise the debt ceiling, let's let's tell the world we can't make good in our promises yeah. at all. I mean, right. So that's like that's a thing. You know, when the debt ceiling stuff happened, people were like, okay, so look, the reason the U.S. currency is such like a big deal and why the U.S. economy is so strong is because people not because people think that like dollar bills look cooler than like Turkish lira or something. It's because it's because people have faith in the United States political system to be functional and our military to kick people's asses if they they fuck with us. That's basically it. And so when you fuck around with the debt ceiling and say, "Hey, maybe we'll default on our debt for no reason," it 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 damages the sort of economic, the underlying political infrastructure that supports the economy. And I feel like when you do that, there's got to be a similar sort of sort of you know difficult to quantify calculus here. I mean, even if this deal works out, mm-hmm. doesn't this just damage, like, don't people say, like, what the hell is going on over there in the United States with their crazy-ass Senate? Right, well, it's sort of the sense of if the leader of the free world is saying, look, we don't want war with you, we don't want to bomb you, we want to reach a very peaceful agreement with five other really powerful nations um, to ensure that you have a right to a peaceful nuclear program that can be used to make energy, medical isotopes, that sort of thing. And then you have a pretty big fraction of your legislature saying, fuck it, we can still bomb you. It sort of does undermine any of our negotiating power. And, I mean, Kerry yesterday in the Senate was sort of saying, actually, it's funny, Kerry and Foreign Minister, Iranian Foreign Minister Zarif, had a pretty similar talking points where they were saying, this kind of undermines a ton of other international agreements you have, like 
the status of troops that you left in Afghanistan and what they're allowed to do and how long they're going to be there. Right, yeah. <laughs> Which didn't go through Congress and shouldn't have, and there's no precedent for Congress to vote on every international agreement that we have. Now, God. I, I think that let, let's... I'm, I'm going to try to uh, sort of, like, peel this back to perhaps uh, uh, a, a, a more positive motivation. Uh Certainly, the Senate should play a role of some kind in in negotiating this deal or affirming it. Sure. So, what are the what are the norms for this kind of thing? The governing norms for this kind of thing. So that's not really clear. This, they're not calling this a treaty. That if it was a treaty, then Congress would have to advise and consent the president to ratify it. They don't actually vote to ratify it, but they do have a pretty significant role in advising the president to ratify it. Uh, this type of agreement, there. The way it's worded in executive agreement, there isn't really a precedent for Congress to approve it. But it is fair to me, at least, to hear the congressmen and the senators that are saying, you know, this is this is one of the biggest geopolitical issues of our time. We can't trust a few people negotiating on the other side of the world, these terms that we aren't even privy to. We want to be able to have a say in it. So on one side, you have um, a bill led by Senator Corker that... The gist of it is to enhance congressional oversight, but there's some controversial parts of it. It uh, doesn't allow any sanctions to be lifted for two months after the negotiating powers reach an agreement, which is kind of some people see it as killing the deal because sanctions relief is sort of what the U.S. has to offer the Iranians right now. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that people aren't super happy about that are pro-negotiations, uh, the negotiations don't have any political incentives tied to him. It doesn't say you need to stop arming Hezbollah. You can't work with Hamas. It basically just says, let's look at your nuclear program. Let's look at how many centrifuges you have. Let's look at how much you enrich the uranium. And Senator Corker's bill says that we can sanction you if you can't demonstrate that you've given up support for terrorism. So a lot of people see that as sort of a distracting, not helpful clause. Uh, Senator Boxer has a competing bill that she introduced last week that's more closely tied to uh, just being able to kind of monitor that the negotiations and the agreement are being followed through. And Barbara Boxer doesn't want the Congress to vote up or down. She just wants to be able to have oversight, where Senator Corker wants to be able to throw out the whole bill if he doesn't like it. He did not sign the Senator Tom Cotton letter. And I saw him um, on Tuesday and said, you know, why didn't you sign it? He said, I didn't think it'd be that appropriate. I'm the head of the Committee on Foreign Relations. I'm trying to get this bill passed. Um, President Obama's already said he's going to veto it. I need the Democrats to sign on. And so I took it as well. That's that's extremely reasonable. Like you see this as counterproductive to negotiations. What a what a great leader. And I said, well, do you think that the um, the letter was counterproductive to getting support for your bill? And he says, oh no no no. I just had lunch with Tom Cotton. It was great. We talked about Iran. He knows a lot about Iran. Everything's great. And he sort of got the sense that he realized putting his name on the letter would have been a pretty bad move, but didn't seem to have any complaints with the letter itself. And him and a lot of Republicans were blaming the White House, saying, we had to write this letter because the White House is leaving us out <laughs> of these things that we want to be a part of, so, so did, we'll stick it to him. I saw one, something, I think it was in Politico or something, with John McCain kind of kind of blaming the weather for his, for his signing it right. He was, he was, he was saying, ah, oh, well, <laughs> we all kind of just signed that letter because we you know there was a snowstorm coming in and we wanted to get out of town, so I think we just sort of... Got a little, got a little crazy trying to Is dodge the snow. Is a snowstorm coming? Oh, there, there had been when, oh, when this was cir circulating. It was okay. a big, big snowstorm uh, last Thursday. So now that the weather's nice, he's going to retract <laughs> his name and issue an apology to Zarif. That would be nice. Yeah, now that it's fifty degrees, right. seeing things more clearly <laughs> right. now. Um, is there a sense that 
the signatories of this letter just simply don't believe the Iranians are rational actors. Oh, absolutely. Are the Iranians rational actors? I haven't met them, but there's quite a bit of a deep-rooted political theory that says that most sovereign leaders of a nation are rational in the sense that they don't want to, they don't want their nation to die. They don't want to fall out of power. So the people that see that as a reasonable thing will say, well, the Iranians might sort of desire this nuclear capability, but at the same time, if they get one bomb and it's detected by the U.S., they're probably going to get bombed by the U.S.'s much stronger nuclear arsenal, not to mention Israel's, which is undeclared and not guide, or not under the guidelines of international inspection. Right. So where, where do you go? Where do you go if there's just sort of this deep-seated belief that these people can't be, aren't motivated by the sort of typical norms of statecraft? Well, the people that I think believe that are the people in Congress, which is why I think the White House has been pretty adamant to leave Congress out of this discussion. Well, <laughs> I would actually question Congress's <laughs> statecraft, too. Well, but, to but, but this does get to interesting issues, right? Because, you know, if, if, if this were going the opposite direction, you know, if the president were declaring war in, say, Libya mm-hmm. uh, and, and wanting, wanting to... A, a, exercise force against another country, then I think most uh, most people, at least in the Democratic Party, who have been skeptical of, uh, you know, foreign adventurism, uh, military adventurism in the last few years would say, wait a minute, you should you should talk to Congress about this sort of thing. Um, we we want to have some level of congressional oversight. Uh, and, and here, I mean, I think it is different when you're talking about an agreement to not use force versus an agreement to go and use force. Uh, there's are different levels of of uh, you know, uh, th- th- there there is a, there is a, qual- a qualitative difference between these these two types of decisions. You right. you want to t- tell people, whoa whoa whoa, that's a big step to declare war on somebody. Whereas the step to not declare war on somebody is kind of a not step. Having mm-hmm. to having to clear that it seems seems weird. But but I do think the idea of congressional oversight is something that at least has some rhetorical appeal. Uh, and I'm surprised that the Republicans haven't found a better way to express that than. Well, uh, that's the thing is, I don't think anyone would say that Congress shouldn't have the right to say give us evidence that the Iranians are actually following through with the deal and give us the ability to punish them with more sanctions if they're not. And that's essentially what Senator Boxer's bill does. But I think it'll be pretty hard for Senator Boxer to co-opt any of the Republicans from Senator Corker's bill to sign on to hers. So as far as I see it, that has a very little chance of going anywhere. Um, But this notion that they should be able to vote the entire agreement up or down, stall it for two months while they figure out if they like it, Oh, and also punish them for something totally unrelated to nuclear negotiations that has to do with Hezbollah mm-hmm. um, kind of complicates things. All right. Well, Jessica, thanks for joining us. I hope you come back and join us again. We'd love to. If we haven't turned you off. Of Not at all. Forever. Thank you. Yay. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced and edited by Ibrahim Balki with technical direction from Brad Shannon and assistance from Christine Canetta and Adriana Ucero. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by Huffington Post senior politics reporters Zach Carter and Arthur Delaney, as well as HuffPost national security reporter Jessica Schulberg. So That Happened is available on iTunes. Please check us out in the iTunes store and look for the Huffington Post whole family of podcasts. Subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. As always, thanks for listening, and we miss you already. Hold up. 
when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.